Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by a special guest. Hey, great to be with you today, and uh, thank you for having us back. Uh, We appreciate so much the love, the investment, the encouragement that our family has received from this church. And if I could just take a moment to uh, say thank you for encouraging us and continually doing that. We've maintained a number of friendships in this church, so we're so grateful for that. Many of you prayed for us over the years and continue to do so. I still remember years ago our men's Bible study that just started out as a handful of men and God grew it and uh, we ended up going to another room, then to another room, and then to another room as God just continued to bless in that study. And I remember those men praying that uh, I would uh, eventually get into ministry. So in many ways, I'm indebted to them. But I also want to thank you, and this is an aspect of your church you may not all be familiar with. I know many of you are. But this church serves as a great encouragement to many pastors. You have hosted a number of uh, pastor conferences that I've been a part of and other pastors have been a part of. Scott hosts the uh, M4 conference that is coming up in a couple of weeks. That is a blessing. That is an encouragement uh, for men who are in the ministry. And you show great hospitality and encouragement to those who attend. So I thank you for that. I've been on the receiving end of that many times. And also for allowing Pastor Scott to serve on our council. Our council of 18 is kind of the governing body of our association. Scott has served on that for the past several years. We value his voice. We are thankful that God has placed him on that. And we want this church, which is really a great highlight in our association of churches, uh, to be exposed to other churches because you, whether you know this or not, encourage many pastors in many churches. So thank you so much for that. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in it to Luke chapter 10, if you would. This is where we're going to be today. And as you find your place in Luke chapter 10, I want to give you a hypothetical situation. What if I told you that there's a way to make $1 billion in two weeks time? You'd think I'm nuts, wouldn't you? And it's not through the stock market. It's not through striking oil or finding gold. It's not through starting a social media empire that has over a billion users. Nothing to do with that. Somebody actually did this a few years ago. In two weeks' time, they made over $1 billion simply by telling a good story. It was the writers of the new Star Wars, The Force Awakens, in two weeks' time after its release, made over $1 billion. And here's what they did. They had the characters, they had the conflict, they had the climax, they had the conclusion. And what does it do? Time after time after time, it brings us back. This is the same method Jesus used many times when he spoke in parables during his earthly ministry. And in the book of Luke that we're going to be in today, Luke highlights this more than any other New Testament author. 
And this is basically what a parable is. We don't use that word a lot in our English language. I, I doubt many of you husbands come home from work at night and say, honey, let me tell you a good parable today. I, I just don't think that's how we communicate, but it is an important form of communication. And here's what it simply is. It's a contrast. It's a comparison that drives home a point. Some parables have more than one point, but this one generally has one that most would say is there in the parable. And so it drives drives it home by using some sort of comparison. That's what Jesus is going to do here. And, and those of you familiar with the Bible, those getting new to the Bible, you realize it's not all written the same way. There's, you know, history, there's law, there's the prophets, there's poetry, wisdom, there's the epistles, there's, there's prophecy that's there in, in the scriptures. And now we have today that we're going to examine is a parable. And there's something about stories that just kind of resonate with us. For example, how many of you are familiar with the story of Goldilocks? Let me see your hands. How about the three little bears? You know that, okay. I highly doubt you're familiar with those stories because you did your quiet time to them on your way to church today. You know those stories because they make a point. They make a point that's easy to remember. And Luke's intent with writing this gospel and then later on the book of Acts, he's writing to one man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him, but one thing Luke tried to highlight is the earthly ministry of Jesus, the significance of his earthly life that eventually took him to the cross where he would die for our sins and rise again from the dead. But Luke Luke also highlighted more than any author recording the words of Jesus. Jesus' warnings against things like greed and coveting and materialism. In fact, you find uh, Luke recording the words of Jesus in Luke 12, verse 15. Be on your guard. Be careful against all forms of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And what I find to be one of the key texts on the subject of discipleship, at the end of Luke chapter 14, Jesus said this, unless you renounce, he doesn't say unless you give it away, unless you burn it up, he says unless you renounce, dealing with the allegiance of your heart, unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. And this brings us to what I think is, is probably one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Jesus is approached by a religious leader, a lawyer. And let's not look at that like we would as a 21st century American. Put on your first century Jewish glasses. This is a different kind of lawyer. And the lawyer will ask two questions, both deeply theological and both very easy to answer. And Jesus will use the parable of the Good Samaritan to answer this question. I'll ask this at the beginning of the message, and I'll ask it at the end. Here's the question. Who is my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor? And the answer that Jesus gives here to that would have shocked his first century audience. 
They would have been repulsed by his answer. And my prayer today after we study this passage is that we understand a little bit more clearly what it means to love our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? How does God command us to love our neighbor? What does that look like in real life? And we're going to look at how this unfolds in this passage. And this is going to entail four different truths that I want you to jot down and, and pray that God would really get this into our hearts. So let's pray as we begin our message today. Let's ask God to do a great work through the work of his word. So let's bow our hearts together in prayer. Father, we come before you, and this time is important, not because of me, but because of you and your word. And so I pray that you would help me to faithfully communicate this in a way that you are pleased with, in a way that resonates in the hearts of your people, and in a way that would truly open up the eyes of those who do not know your son. And we pray you'd work in their hearts and lives in a way that I cannot. Uh, Lord, work in my own heart. I need this as much as anybody here. And, and may our love for one another and our love for this world grow because of this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together. So if our love is going to reflect the love that Christ wants us to have in loving our neighbor, it's going to entail four different truths. First one is this, is your love must be rooted in biblical truth. Let's pick it up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here's the skilled lawyer. And he asks two questions. Let's look at the first one. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now this lawyer, again, let's not think of him the way you and I normally think of the word attorney or lawyer. Let's think of it as a first century Jewish audience. And they would have seen this man as an expert in the law. He was someone who would counsel the Sanhedrin on matters of the law. And when they made a judgment on a theological issue, that judgment was final. They were kind of like the Supreme Court. What they said goes. It's the law of the land. So the stage of the debate is set. Here's this guy, this expert, this professor, this professional in the law with all the educational credentials. And here's the carpenter from Nazareth. And he comes to him, if you look in verse 25, he comes to test him, an important word in the text. And this word test gives the idea that he wants to embarrass him. He wants to put him in his place. And the premise of the question is very misleading. It's a contradiction in terms, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about this for a moment. This man knew the Old Testament well. And it's in the Old Testament that you read, God is gracious and he is kind. And he gives to his covenant people Israel his what you call his hesed faithful love. He's also patient. When humanly speaking, you would think that God would eradicate Israel off the face of the earth. That's not what he did. He was faithful to his promises. And he would have been familiar with verses like Genesis 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him for righteousness. He would have known that. 
But yet he doesn't understand this. And instead, what's happening here, you find religious pride is corrupting their understanding of how someone inherited eternal life. What do you have to do to inherit something? You simply just receive it. And Jesus' answer is this. He does not say, if you do this, you'll be saved. Don't read into the text, just read the text. He doesn't say, if you do this, you'll be saved. Instead, here's what he does, and this is what the Bible often does. It holds up a mirror. The older I get, the less I like mirrors because they are so brutally honest. I look at the mirror, I'm thinking, I haven't lost that much hair, have I? My hair's not that gray, is it? I'm not that big, am I? We'll answer that in a different day. But we we think, you know, that's not really how I look. But this is how the Word of God functions, as James chapter 1 teaches. It's a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us. And oftentimes, as we read the Word, we think, I thought I was a lot more Christ-like than that. I thought I was a lot more mature than that. But yet the Word of God cuts our religious pride and our religious hypocrisy. And Jesus essentially says this, go ahead And you do that thing you claim you believe. You go ahead and do that. And Jesus knew, and you and I should know this, he could never do it. He would never be able to do that. And he wanted the man to see that as well. He would never be able to do this. Now let me ask you this. What should your response be to this? And it should be this. I am a sinner. I can't live up to this. I am a sinner. I'm not naturally good. I have turned against my creator. I've willfully done that. I've sinned against him. I need a savior. And praise God, the savior who we've turned against, who we've not been a very good neighbor to, the one who knows everything about us has chosen to love us. And we just sang the last song we sang as we... um, just began our time in the word together, I was thinking to myself, man, we could close the service with that. Now we're not going to do that, but we could have. What a powerful message that, that he has died and he's risen again from the dead. And you friend today, if you don't know Christ as your savior, understand the best news you'll ever hear is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has brought you here today, not on accident. This isn't random. This isn't chance. This isn't a roll of the dice. You are here by a sovereign appointment. And I know this, you have been prayed for. You might've had family praying for you. I know the staff prays for you and the deacons, they pray for the community here. And, and you are here today to hear the best news you'll ever hear. That God in his love and in his grace sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. And he has been buried. And praise God, three days later, after being in a tomb that was sealed shut, that was guarded, what happened three days later, church? He rose again from the dead. You may ask, well, how do I come to faith in him? And it's simply this. You turn from your sin. You turn from your self-righteousness. You turn from trusting your church. And you turn to the only one who can forgive you of your sins. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Maybe I'll do that next week. And I think all of us have been alive long enough to realize the next moment in life is not promised. Tomorrow's not promised. And the best time to come to faith in Christ, friend, is right now. Right where you're sitting. In your heart, you can turn from your sin and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust alone in Jesus Christ.
And that brings us to the next question that Jesus will ask here, or that the man will ask. And he asks, who is my neighbor? Again, very familiar territory for a Jewish person. Every Jewish boy and girl would have known this like the back of their hand by the age of 12. They would have had this memorized, much less an expert in the law with all of the credentials. Now remember, this parable deals with the self-righteousness that's in this man's heart. And he wanted to, notice the phrase, justify himself. And the lawyer was thinking this, what kind of Jewish person can I love? What kind of Jewish person can I sacrificially love? What, what kind of Jewish person, how far should that go? I want you to think of how you would answer that question. Who is your neighbor? I can tell you how I would probably answer it. I tend to answer questions theologically, to be honest with you. I would probably say, well, you know, in the the Old Testament, the word neighbor is used in the Hebrew this many times, and then it's used in this context so many different times, but that's not what Jesus does here. And by no means am I undercutting theological knowledge here, but this is what Jesus does. He gives an intensely real-life, practical example that would convict the heart and shatter any type of self-righteous attitude. And instead of giving them a theological lecture, he gives an example that would cut to the heart of their ethnic and religious hypocrisy and prejudices and their social stigmas. And I would tell you this today, friend, if your theology and what you believe does not in some way cause you to become uncomfortable from time to time, then you might want to re-examine what you believe theologically. Because when I read the Bible, I have no trouble believing Scripture. And I praise God for that. What I struggle with is like, God, do you really want me to apply this? Do you really want me to do this? How can I do this? So ask yourself this question. How extreme of a command is this that says, go love your neighbor? Or better yet, here's the question again. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And now the parable will answer that question. So if we're going to love our neighbor, our love must entail certain characteristics. And here we go. Look at number two here. Your love must be compassionate. Let's pick it up in verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's important here to understand just a little bit of the historical context of what's going on here. You and I, as, as Western Christians, don't think much of the word Samaritan. But, but if you're going to get this passage and the point of this passage, and better yet, the gravity of this passage, you've got to understand a little bit of the ethnic tension as to what's going on here. I think, personally, it even goes beyond the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we have noticed in our lifetimes. The Samaritans were a group of people that were the result, if you go back several centuries in Old Testament history, the kingdom of Israel was divided because of their sin. 
And they were part of the northern kingdom of Israel that ended, ended up intermingling with the Assyrians. They eventually became known as Samaritans. Now, why were they different? Well, they weren't what you would call purebred Jewish people, but not only that, theologically, they were a little bit different. They did not worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. They did not uh, believe the whole Old Testament. They only believed the Old Testament up until the book of Deuteronomy. But not only that, the whole name Samaritan to Jesus' audience would have been repulsive. It was almost like using a racial slur. So it's not Jesus just using an example here. This is completely unexpected. Why would you use this example to demonstrate what it means to love your neighbor? Notice some things here as to what's going on in the text. The victim is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you've been to Israel before, and I understand your church has a, a trip going to Israel next October. Boy, I wish I could go to that. I'm already speaking next October in, in several places, so that's not possible. But maybe God will rearrange the schedule and somebody here, God will burden to write a big check and I can go for free again. But that's beside the point. But if you've ever been to Jeru uh, Jerusalem, you know when you go to Jerusalem, what happens? You go up to Jerusalem. So here he's going down to Jericho. And what this was known as was the way of blood. It wasn't patrolled by police. People were mugged. They were robbed. They were hijacked. And here's this man. He's robbed. He's beaten badly. He's left for dead. And you know what you see here? This man needs help. And he needs help badly. It reminds me of the old Sunday school song. Uh, way back in the day, maybe you sang this song before, you have the robbers and look at their hard attitude. What's yours is mine, and I'm willing to hurt you to get it. What's yours is mine, it doesn't matter. I will steal from you and I'll hurt you to get it. You have the priest and the Levite that says this, what's mine is mine and I'm gonna keep it. It's a selfish, hoarding type of attitude. Not generous at all. And then we have a Samaritan. And the Samaritan has the attitude that says, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it. Reminds me a lot of Hebrews 13, verse 16, which encourages us to share with one another. And friends, this right here is what it really means to love your neighbor. Look down at the text again, and you find this word in verse 33, compassion. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is a powerful word. It means to be moved on the inside. Literally gives the idea that your, your bowels are moved so much when you see someone hurting. And here's the question again, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And I would submit to you, it's this. Your neighbor is one where you're in a position to meet their need and you do something about it. Or you could word it this way. It's anyone whose need you see and you're in a position to meet it. I think 1 John 3, 17 talks about this very clearly. Let's read these words together where John's talking to the early church and he's talking to them about evidences of being a truly regenerate believer that if you're truly regenerate, love is going to be a major characteristic of your life. 
And, and he talks to them and he says, look, this is how love is manifested. Let's read together as a church, 1 John 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let me give you a scenario where I think this plays out in real life. Picture with me one of the coldest days of the year. And you're driving to work, and let's say you got to take the Stevenson, Route 55, to work. And it's a frigid, cold day, and the dashboard of your vehicle shows your car's about to overheat, and lo and behold, smoke starts coming out of the hood of your car. So you pull over to the side of the road, and it's just the worst day for this to happen because you're going through a financial difficulty, and you're thinking, the last thing I need right now is an expensive car repair. As you get out of your car to check your hood, your cell phone flies out of your hand and it ends up getting run over immediately by a semi-truck. So you have no cell phone. You have $5 in your wallet. You're cold. You're a little nervous. And you need help. Now let me ask you this, friend. In that very instance, who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor at that point? And I would say this, if that were me, it would be anyone who could know about my need and meet my need at that point. And at that point, friend, you don't care if your neighbor is white, if they're African-American, if they're Hispanic. You don't care if their English is good or if it's fluent. All you care about is, I need help. Now ask yourself this question. Can you think of at least one area of your life right now where you're involved in some sort of compassionate ministry to other people? Let me give you some examples of this, where you're showing compassion and helping hurting people. It could be counseling those who are hurting. I praise God, God is raising up here a fantastic biblical counseling ministry. And, and I, I praise God for that resource that you have here at this church. And it might be that you can come alongside people and give them biblical hope or hurting and have struggles in their life. It might be that you're a friend who sits and listens and gives of their time to someone else. You pray with those who are grieving, who are hurting. You may know someone who's just lost a loved one and all of us grieve differently and, and maybe their grief is very heavy and they're going through a very difficult time. It might be you just sit and listen and just listen to someone as they share with you their hurts and their concerns. It might be you shovel a neighbor's driveway. It might be you're in a financial position where you can help someone who's lost a job and maybe give an anonymous gift and not let anyone know about it. But just think, how can I let this, this compassion that was characteristic of someone that Jesus' audience was not expecting, how can this be a, a bright, evidential characteristic of my life that nobody can ignore, that people can look at us and say, like many of the Roman historians did of the Christians in the first century, and take this notice and say, look at how they love one another. Look how they love one another. Let's look at another characteristic of, of neighborly love, is that your love will be sacrificial. Look at verse 34, if you would. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Let's see some things as to what's going on in the text. See what the Samaritan gives up. He gives up oil and wine. Very important in the ancient Near East where this was important for cooking and food materials. It would have been essential for eating in the ancient world. He also gives up his own animal. This is kind of like us giving up our car. He's giving up his comfort. This is still a very precious thing for those in the Middle East who don't have a vehicle. I remember being back in Jordan uh, several years ago at, at Petra. Anybody here ever been to Petra in Jordan? I remember being in Petra and uh, riding a donkey back to where our bus was and the tour guide specifically told us do not give him a tip. They will ask for a tip. Do not give a tip. So I'm riding back talking with the guy. You know, I'm not that acclimated to riding a donkey and so he could tell I was visibly a little bit nervous and so we get back and the man stops me and he goes, where's my tip? I said, you know, I'm sorry, but they told me specifically not to give you a tip. Here's the man stepped back and he pointed to me. He goes, you are a big man. And I said, well, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that with me. He goes, you're a big man. You are really hard on my donkey. How can you not give me a tip? I thought to myself, well, you know, a way to a man's heart is not by talking about his physique, you know, but I thought to myself, you know, wow, these animals are so precious to them because they don't have vehicles. And that's what the man gave up. He gives up his own animal. Then he brings him to an inn. And this means he gave of his time. You know, a lot of us, we don't mind giving money here and there. But when you give of your time, you're allowing people to interrupt your schedule. And I have to confess to you, I'm real rigid about my schedule. I need to be more flexible with this. But I have to understand, and we all have to understand this, is that when God interrupts our schedule, he does that sovereignly. God is the one who does that. He gives up his time. Then he took care of him. He does this personally. He personally uh, binds up his, bound up his wounds. And what's interesting here, if you don't like the sight of blood and gory stuff, this man was a bloody mess. He personally takes care of him. And then in verse 35, he gave him a blank check. He's willing to absorb some financial loss for him. He says, I will Repay. Now, this is what's interesting to me as I read the text, and this is just kind of how I prepare sermons. I read the text over and over and over again, out loud, as much as I possibly can. Here's what I noticed. In the parable, you never find the word love. But here's what you do find. You find love manifested. You find love exemplified. You find the demonstration of this. Here you have this Samaritan. He's, he's an ethnic, he's a religious outcast, caring for this Jewish man sacrificially. In other words, he became vulnerable. And to love your neighbor means you become vulnerable. Look at verse 33 again. He came to where he was. And this is what you understand about biblical love. It is not convenient. It's costly. I think of the term costly compassion in comparison with compassionate conservatism, which surfaced in the year 2000. Think of the word costly compassion. And there's simply no way to love your neighbor without loving like Jesus loved. Going out of your way, and from time to time, here's what's going to happen, and often I'll counsel pastors who will say things to me like, I'm done with ministry. I'm tired of people hurting me. 
I'm, I'm, I'm tired of people doing things to me and my family that are hurtful. I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm done with it. But friend, if you're going to love like Jesus loved and continues to love you, we're going to be hurt sometimes by those that we love. And if you notice here what this man does, it is a sacrificial kind of love. He went to where he was. Now, who do you know in your life that you could go to them and it would require a little bit of sacrifice and going out of your way and inconvenience to show the love of Christ? Demonstrate in the name of Christ a costly compassion. All of our relationships, they're messy. Marriages are messy, even Christian marriages. Our churches are full of messy people. And from time to time, when we love people, there's going to be some technicalities and issues and difficulties with those relationships. But friend, this is exactly what God calls us to do. It's a love that enters into the hurts and the pains of the real life issues, the stuff of life. Let me give you the last characteristic that I think is often overlooked. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means your love extends even to your enemies. After I looked at this passage over and over again, this is something that just really kind of reached out and grabbed me from the text. Look at verse 36. Which one of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said to the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So who exactly demonstrated what it means to love your neighbor? Well, verse 36, the, the expert, the lawyer, he had to be honest. He said, it's the one who showed him mercy. One thing you want to see here in the text, he never uses his name. I'm not sure why. Could it be that he couldn't even bring himself to talk about the man's name? In a lesson that the man who was robbed and beaten would have learned... Even my enemy, even my enemy is my neighbor. The Samaritan who I've always considered my enemy, the ethnic outcast, the religious outcast, he was the loving neighbor to me. That, friends, is what I think is often missed in this parable. So ask yourself the question again. Just keep asking. Who is my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor? Friends, it's those we love to be around. Like so many of you, we've known a long time and we have great memories and we love to be around you and we share common interests and it's those, you have the same hobbies, you have the same things that intrigue you and you love their company, they're pleasant, they're polite people and they're a joy to be around. It's the stranger God compels you to help, but it's also the person who may not like you. It might be the person who annoys you. It might be the individual who has idiosyncrasies that seem to get under your skin. It might be the person who has said things behind your back. It might be the person who has financially hurt you. It might be the parent who wasn't the most perfect parent. But God commands us, friends, even to love those who do not love us back. Even your enemy is your neighbor. Jesus doesn't make a Pharisee, a teacher, an expert in the law, or another Jewish man the hero of the story. The one here who comes out as the hero of the story really is the Samaritan. 
The religious and ethnic outcasts and the actions of the Samaritan demonstrate what you and I should be doing. Go and do likewise. Go and love the way the Samaritan loved. But more importantly, let's do this. Let's go and love those God places in our life the way Jesus has loved. The way Jesus has loved us, you are not in your neighborhood on accident. You are not at your job on accident. You are not in the family you are on accident. God sovereignly placed you there so we could be a fountain of God's love that overflows into this world because God has loved us so much. Think of Romans 5.8, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you love your neighbor like Jesus... It goes beyond geographical boundaries. It goes beyond just thinking about the neighborhood we live in. It goes beyond a race or an ethnic or an economic status. It even goes beyond this, our own personal convenience. Now think back to the question, who is my neighbor? Speaking about God's love, personally knowing about God's love, it's great, but it's not enough. In the words of Jesus in John 13, verse 17, blessed are you if you know these things and you do them. Happy is the person who knows this and they do it. I believe this book with all my heart that this is God's inerrant, sufficient book, his word. But I also believe this, this book is intensely practical. In every situation we face right now, specifically today, how can I love my neighbor? God addresses it in his word. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anyone who has a need, and I'm in a position to meet it. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit atharvest.church.com.